0: Welcome back to another episode of LaTarte on Location. I'm your host, Steve LaTarte. And guys, when you spent more than 20 years of your life traveling the road as a NASCAR crew chief and then a TV analyst, you are bound to meet some interesting characters along the way. With LaTarte on Location, I'll bring you closer to some of the great personalities I've connected with in some great locations. Today, the location couldn't be more historic. We are at the Lady in Black Darlington Raceway in South Carolina. It's Labor Day weekend, the Southern 500. And you can't come to Darlington without having a Hall of Famer as your guest. So today my guest is Hall of Famer Rusty Wallace. Rusty, man, thanks for joining us.
1: All right, no problem. This worked out perfect. We're right here in the infield of Darlington right now, a couple hours before the start of this race. And uh, it's a perfect time to do this because we've already had all our meetings and we're all kind of relaxed. I think you got one more coming up, yeah, but then we're good more. to go.
0: Yeah, one more meeting. So I had the last so throwback. We were going through everything, and I had to tell this on air. So now I'm going to tell it to you to your face. Everybody said, like, oh, so who's your driver? So in 1988 or 89, I was living in Maine, and my dad said, Come on, we're going to Daytona. We drove all the way down there for Speed Weeks, all nine yards, and I had the Rusty Wallace 27 Kodiak t shirt, and you signed it. Oh. And it was in the, in the wall of my bedroom growing up. So, you were my guy. So, this is a cool deal for me because you were my hero. I liked how you raced. I liked the, the short track and no nonsense. So, uh, now I've admitted it for everybody to know. I said I don't always deny it but because uh, we were hard-fought competitors oh, for a yeah. while. Oh, yeah. I
1: mean, you're, when but, you're uh, with the 24 car. I that's mean, right. That's, a, that's all I thought about when it comes to you. But, <laughs> 88, 89, man, those were some magic years for me. 88, six wins. Yeah. Missed a championship like 10 points from Bill Elliott. Yeah, you're talking about some an era that I just really oh. miss and love. It was amazing. Oh, you were the guy.
0: Jeff, we were fortunate to win double digits, I think, one year there, but you were the guy that set that mark. I remember it was like six wins and then came back with ten wins one year. Um, Man, you've won a ton of races. But I want to go all the way back. Um, We all have to start somewhere. NASCAR on NBC, we had this Racing Roots campaign. Takes us back to our short tracks. When I think of short tracks, I think of you, uh, Kawicki, Mark Martin, back in the day, but the Wallace family in general. The Patriarch, right? Your dad was a racer. Isn't that how it all started? Yeah, my dad was
1: a racer in St. Louis, Missouri, and he was just tearing up the short tracks. A little track we ran was called uh, Lake Hill Speedway in Valley Park, Missouri, and a lot of drivers ran there. Larry Phillips was a really great short track racer out of the Midwest. Uh, He raced there, and he taught my father a lot about cars. Uh, But, yeah, dad was racing Tri-City Speedway right on the border of – right across the river from St. Louis. He'd run the dirt tracks there, and then – he would go over to Lake Hill Speedway and run the asphalt tracks there. Well, as time went on, Dad got tired of driving. He saw us coming along and he just basically turned everything over to me and, uh, and Mike at that point. And then later on, Kenny got right. involved. But uh, yeah, we all started back in St. Louis and that's where the whole thing started to happen right there.
0: And then you cut your teeth through Florida, through the ASA day. I mean, and, and when I look, I go back and I try to do some research. I almost questioned if some of the late model races and ASA races weren't more stacked field than some of the cup races you won. When I look at the guys you lined up against in those ASA days, it was an impressive
1: list. Well, I appreciate you saying that because back then, I mean, that was, I'll tell you what, 1981 through 1984, I would say, the ASA drivers were just amazing. You had Dick Trickle. You had Alan Kawicki. Davey Allison would race with us a little bit. We had Mike Eddy. We had Bob Seneca. Those were really, really big names in the short track stuff. And if those guys ever decided that they wanted to go NASCAR racing, they could have come down here and did some real damage against these guys. I'm positive of that. But it's really amazing how a guy like Mike Getty and a guy like Bob Seneca were really, really just happy doing what they were doing. And they weren't excited to run, come down here in NASCAR and go through this. They, uh, they loved ASA racing, but that's what got me into NASCAR. I won the championship in 1983, won a bunch of races, and it, it helped propel my career into NASCAR.
0: So I was doing the research, and, and shame on me. I remember your first years at Blue Max, but that wasn't the case. I, I guess that's where probably the success—that must be how I visualize it. But it was someone before Blue, Blue Max.
1: Yeah, what happened? I won the, the championship in ASA 1983. Uh, in December, I get a phone call from Cliff Stewart, who was sponsored by Gatorade, the number 88 Gatorade car that Jeff Bodine was driving, mm-hmm. and um, and they had a falling out. Bodine and, and Stewart did, and Gatorade—they called me up and said. We just noticed you won this championship. We're looking for somebody new. Would you take a, come on down and give us a talk? So I talked to them. They put me in a car, and I actually ran terrible. I ran terrible, but I did win the rookie of the year. Right. I okay. won the rookie of the year in 84, and then in 1985, the next year with the same team, we blew 23 engines that year. Oh, boy. It was terrible. And I held on as long as I could. At the same time, the Blue Max guys saw me have some really good runs. And uh, the late Tim Richmond was moving on to Rick Hendrick. Yep. And they called me up and said, hey, I want you to drive this car. Richmond's been driving. I said, okay. Because I could tell the other deal was not going to work. We right, lost right. our sponsor and everything. So I uh, went with Beetle, and, man, we clicked right away. Yeah. I, I Brandon think Beetle,
0: that's a famous name. I actually, his it's got to be his son He's, uh works at Junior Motorsports as an attorney. Yeah. I think it's his son. It yeah, must be his son. So that name, that Raymond Beetle, the Blue Max, that that, that shop, I've driven by it. It's down there right by Harris Boulevard, kind of down that way. So. Yep,
1: that was the shop right off Harris Boulevard, right where you're saying. And Raymond's son is a great attorney for yep. Dale, Dale yep. Jr. Right, right now. He was just a little baby when I was driving those cars <laughs> back then. But, yeah, Beetle put me in a car. Four races into it, we won Bristol three more races later we went to martinsville we won again i said my gosh is this true did i just not get i thought maybe i just got lucky on that first bristol right. run would another one come and then i won another one three races later I said oh man i think i'm in the club now <laughs> this is awesome this feels good and so i made it and me and that team gosh that team was just amazing a bunch of young guys aggressive really good pit crew they were really fast And and let's see what was it eighty? The first year for that was nineteen eighty six. Yep, we won a couple of races. Eighty seven, we won two more. Eighty eight, we won six. Eighty nine, we won six more in the championship. Yep. Nineteen ninety, I won the Coke six hundred. I win Sears Point, and then the team ran out of money. Oh, and then it was then it was then it was over. But
0: you know, it's fun when I go back and look at your numbers. um, So there's a lot of. Drivers, I can't connect the dots. Like, why are they good here? Why are they good there? You, it's the exact opposite. I think it's crystal clear. The blueprint was there all the way back to ASA. When I look, while you ran well everywhere, you never ran anywhere as well as the short tracks. Bristol, Richmond, Martinsville. I know it's hard for the listeners to believe, but before these fancy computers and time and scoring, we used stopwatches. And when I was a tire guy in 95, when you went to Martinsville, my job was to do tires and to time you. (laughs) <laughs> because Ray knew, hey, listen, we, we're going we to be better than Rusty, and we might check Mark, and we'll see. Senior doesn't normally practice that well, but if you check Rusty, that's who we're going to be running for back then on those short tracks. I mean, everywhere we went, especially the short tracks, you were on
1: fire. So this morning I got a question in the Hall of Fame meeting. We're here at Darlington, and all the Hall of Famers were here. and We had five or 600 people in the audience, and you know, a lady popped up and said, hey, i got a young son, and what can I do with him to get him learning more, and yeah. be more successful quicker. And my approach the whole time was understand that car. And I've had arguments with current drivers about that, too. And one of the biggest arguments I had, actually, was with Jeff Gordon. Yeah, He said, you know, I think you'd have run more races if you weren't so involved in a car. I said, no, I know you would have run more, won more races if you got more involved in a car.
0: Because yeah, he self-admittedly will tell you, I work with him so I know, but for the listener, he... he He's not a shocking spring guy. He's not going to. He couldn't tell you what springs are in that thing.
1: Well, in 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 ASA, we had to know that. Trickle taught me a lot. Mark Martin and I worked together a lot. You had to know your car. Because, I mean, I had to know the air pressures, I had to know the springs, I had to know the shocks. I never used to read shock graphs. And so then I got to where I, I was driving off of shock graphs. Mm-hmm. I would say, I want the graph to look like this. Right. So I really got involved in the handling of the car. I just would f- feel so uncomfortable, Steve, if I didn't know every part about that car. If I didn't know everything that surrounded me, I was like lost. I felt like I was just out on the island all by myself and really didn't have any control of this ship. So... Uh, I got very, very involved in it. And because of me being so involved in it, every time I go to a short track or a Bristol or whatever, in fact, all tracks, right? they got it where the guys were sticking their head in the window and say, What do you want to do? I say, Take the right front the spring. There's 1,200 in there. I put 1,100 in there and raise the track bar half an inch in the back because I got to make it turn a little bit more. And I would make these calls. Obviously, they made all the pit crew calls. Right. They organized a team and we worked together in all these. But the day that I tried to say, No, let me back up. If I ever said, I'm not going to get involved in this car, I'm going to let somebody control my destiny, I will promise you I would fail. Mm-hmm. Jeff Burton and I had a conversation. We were starting, uh, back when the, the new NASCAR car came out, he said, this thing is confusing me so bad, I have finally said, that's it. I'm backing totally out of it. I told him, I said, I know you're in a little trouble right now, but I I personally think if you back out, you're really going to be in trouble. Right. He backed out and got in big trouble. This stuff is hard. you got to know what's going on. and. Look, in my opinion, if you get in there and you don't know anything about the car, and you have really good people surrounding you, yeah. that's great. Okay, yeah. you're going to win, but I don't think you're going to win on a consistent basis. Right, without knowing. Without knowing, you get. I think the more you know, and the better people surround you, you're really going to go then. So it's funny you mentioned
0: Burton. So as I, I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to work with all these guys with so much experience. I said, hey, I'm going to talk to Rusty. <laughs> Jeff laughed. He goes, I want you to ask him, see if he remembers a day at Dover. He goes, I was so bad. I grabbed Rusty and I said, I, I can't qualify as this car. I'm not going to make a lap. And you said, what are you talking about? Let me see what's in it. And according to Burton, you put it on the scales and you set his car up for him this day at Dover and he went out and qualified.
1: Well, I tell you what, I don't remember that exact story. But one story I do remember is going to Phoenix, Arizona and me being totally out to lunch. Yep. And that's a good track for me. I always ran really good there. But being pretty well out to lunch and I just walked up to Jeff and said, what do you got in that damn car? Right, right. And we could talk like that yep. back then. And he just wheeled that setup off. And I said, put it in a car. And and back then, you would tell somebody your setup. And I wouldn't lie to people. Right. And I knew they wouldn't use it. I know they could only get 70% of that past their crew. Yep. So it never did worry me. But this time, I'm the one telling them what to put in the car. Right, right. So I said, "Put this and put this." And Jeff Bowles, my car chief, he's like, well, "I know, Jeffrey." I, yeah. He said, "What in the world are you talk about? We never done nothing like this. Yeah. Let's just do it. Let's yeah, just do right. it." You know. And we put it in, and I went out, and that thing took off. And I said, "Great. Guess what happened? I won the race." Oh boy. It was a rain delay race. But oh, I, I
0: remember it raining in the desert. I, I, I dominated race. that day. Yes,
1: and I won the race. with Jeff Burton set up in the car. Oh, uh, uh, do you have like send him a, bi- a bottle of wine, <laughs> or is there like a
0: peace offering? No, I I, I
1: I don't know if he even remembers this. Oh, that's but he re- great. I know he remembers sharing the setup at, at, at Phoenix. But that, that that's how open we were in the past. I mean, we could just do things like that. Earnhardt used to come up to me. We were in the Bahamas one time on a boat. And I was winning the crap out of these Bristol races, you know, and he wasn't doing too well. He said, give me that setup. I said, all right, I got a 17 in the right front. I got a 1380 in the left front. I got a 350 left rear. I got a 400 right rear. I got a track bar at 9.5 in the left, 10 on the right. Yep. And I got I got a 50.1 cross wedge, and I got 51.3 on the nose. Okay, he writes it all down. Yep. Takes the racetrack, doesn't use it. Yeah. <laughs> And I said, <laughs> what happened? He said, I took it to Childress and those guys. And they went, oh, that sounds kind of a whacked out setup. I, 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 that's not going to yeah. work, yeah, you know. That's where so uh, And I told him the truth. Yeah. And I won the race that week. That's so good. <laughs> that is awesome. I gave the whole truth, everything. He just didn't use it. These guys never do.
0: So while you have a trophy case full of trophies, a championship trophy, won all the big marquee events, the other thing that, that I can't get out of my mind is that year, maybe 93, the two big wrecks, both yeah. Speedway wrecks. I mean, like a little bit airborne, it doesn't look like it's going to be bad, and then it catches, and it flips forever. You have got some highlight reels when it comes to wrecking.
1: 1993 was my first. It was my best year. I won 10 races that year, but it was the two worst crashes ever had. Daytona 500, 1993. Something happens coming off a turn two down the back straightaway, trying to dodge some cars. Car goes end over end. Flipping down there, but it gets in the mud, and it's kind of flipping soft. Yep. It's kind of doing a soft flip, and it lands on its wheels. And I, I remember I get out of the car, it's mad, you know. Right, it's right. first race of the year. Spectacular oh, looking. But yeah. but yeah. Oh, man. Can you believe it, you know? Then we go on to the next race, and I think win Rock and Ham. Then we go to another race and run good. And then we go to Telodega. And, boy, there we are, leading that doggone race. It starts raining. Dale Earnhardt comes up to me and he said, hey, look, when we go back to green, these cats are going to run us down the draft. They're going to blow right past us. We're going to have to hook back up and get after it." Sure enough, two laps to go, man. Here comes Ernie Irvin and the guy's blowing past us. We fall back to fifth. Check, they waving a the white flag. I, we catch back up, and I look in my mirror, and I see Earnhardt coming at me. And he makes a dive to the bottom, and I go down to block him off, and my left rear quarter panel gets in his right front fender. Mm-hmm. And that car gets in the air, gets sideways, and the yeah. air grabs it, and it took off, and that baby went straight up. It went straight up so high that when it came down, it broke my wrist back. And Whoa. I still got a one-foot pin on my left wrist to this day because oh, wow. of that wreck. And then my wrist, wrist snapped off, and then I blacked out. And I ended up waking up in a helicopter.
0: Oh, man. But then I
1: looked at the doggone uh, video, and that car went in over ran a little over 20 times. Oh, yeah. And it went across the start-finish line upside down with the roof facing down across the line to finish fifth. And uh, I was just a teledega doing some media work, and they, and they showed the video. And I went, oh. holy smokes. But yeah, that was two terrible wrecks. But ten wins and barely lost a championship, again, to to Earnhardt. You know, it could have been. I won one title. Could have been three or four real easy. You know.
0: I I'd, I'd say. Uh, you know, that's what I think. Sports in general. It doesn't even matter the sport, right? You're you. Everyone runs into somebody, another team, another player. Uh, For Jeff Gordon, i say it was Jimmy Johnson. If it wasn't for Jimmy Johnson, Jeff would have at least five, maybe six, possibly seven, right? Well, if it wasn't for Dale Sr. and his timing, you'd have way more than one because you were right there on his heels so many times.
1: Yeah, I think about that a lot, and people come to me all the time and said, if the point system that we have now was in effect when you're driving, would you have more championships? I said, well, your warden wins, right? I said, yeah. And I said, well, I had 10 of them. Right. (laughs) And then the following year we switched to four and had eight. Yep. So hopefully I would have, you know.
0: So you leave, you end up at Penske, which perhaps is where most of the listeners are going to know you. Even though the championship uh, was over at Blue Max, when you come to Penske, it just kind of – I mean, it's Roger Penske, right? Yeah. comes on the scene. The equipment is beautiful. If people have never been to a race, just walk through the garage. I mean, Roger's trucks, buses, cars, generators, it doesn't matter. It's the best of the best of the best. Um, but he's had so much success in IndyCar, and he's having it now with Logano and Brad. Brad delivered. But before then, you were it. In my mind, you, you know, you were kind of the guy that put the Penske NASCAR team on the mark.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that, but I will tell you, there's no I in a race team. Yeah. It was all of us. We all know that. And he gave us the tools to do it, and you know what? He, he, he relied on us to do it. Mm-hmm. He would actually to say do this he he, and he tried to do all he could he, we were we were building 40 percent scale wind tunnel cars we were trying to take advantage of everything we could but doggone back then that there just wasn't that many resources available to us even though he could give us all he could that was allowed in nascar or things right. we could do we weren't doing underbelly work yeah, we right. weren't doing all that so we did everything we can but we had a single car team we had a total focus on that one car um and we won a lot of races. But I will tell you, I mean, we, there was no computers back then. There wasn't any simulation that you could right. trust. Yeah. I mean, there's many times you tried it, yeah. but I never could get it to repeat on the track. And we'd sit on these shaker machines building shock absorbers, and i go to the racetrack, and a car about flip over. I'm like, this ain't going <laughs> to yeah. work. It worked in the, in the shaker, but yeah. it doesn't work in the track, you know. We went through all this stuff, but obviously that's a lot, lot better now. But he's a wonderful man. He's a mentor of mine. He's one of the greatest guys in the world. He he really cleaned me, cleaned me up, and scrubbed me up. When I came out of ASA, I had hair that, that <laughs> was the size of a basketball. I was wide open, you know. I used to wash my hair with bar soap. I didn't care, man. I was right. just grinding, you know. But he said, "No, I need you to. I need to polish you up a little bit." Well, yeah. Took me, dressed me up, gave me a haircut, told me the way to act on and off the racetrack. Told me about business. Got me involved in a car business. I got eight dealerships right now. They're wow. all kicking butt. I'm real happy with my life when it comes to that. But I owe so much to Roger because of all that stuff. He was basically, between my father and him, definitely my mentors.
0: Yeah, I feel the same way whenever I'm around Rick, uh, Mr. Hendrick, you know, him and Roger. Absolutely. These guys, they're in a different league, what they see and understand. Um, And that kind of takes me to transition. So, Roger, um, not only – we we, we only have a podcast here. I can't list every business he's in. It would take forever. One of the businesses was racetracks. He's built some racetracks. But then you come along, now that you're out of the car – and you have a hand in designing a racetrack, uh, a great racetrack, which if I ever got a vote, can we have a cup race at Iowa? Because I would be all in. Um, I love the track. I think it's a perfect size. We don't get many of those intermediate-type sh- you know, short tracks, a little over a half mile, not quite a mile. Um, so tell, like, what was the answer? How did it go down? How it, did it you was, end up designing a racetrack?
1: I was really blessed on that deal, and it, 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 this is how it happened. And I, had a, I got a phone call from a, an investor up there in, in Des Moines, Iowa, he said, hey, we want to build a short track. And I said, okay. And he said, we want you to design it. And I immediately said, why do you want me to design it? Right. He says, because you won the most short track races. Right. We're building a short track. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. And so I was winning a crap out of short track races then, you know. So they hired me. Now, here's the good part. They laid the money on the line, $75 million, Whew. And they have the cash in the bank. It's the Manat family in West, in uh, Iowa. They paved all the highways in Iowa, most of them. Yep. They said, let's build this racetrack. I'm not going to spare any money. He's making it happen. I said, all right. So I got a hold of Paxton Waters, who was a really chief designer. He built the California Speedway and a lot of other racetracks. Paxton and I sat down and started working on his track. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to make it like Richmond, but I want to put compound banking in the thing. And so uh, well, I had three quarters of a mile in my mind. Mm-hmm. Then we got a hold of IndyCar because we're going to run IndyCar. I said, man, I, and they said, we're concerned about going from 12 to 14 degrees because right. of the underbellies. Anyway, we can go. 12, 13, 14. I said, you know, yeah, no problem. So then we redesigned the track 12, 13, 14. Started off with a three-quarter mile. Then we figured out we needed to get a road course inside of it. Uh-huh. And a three-quarter was too small. So we stretched it out to seven-eighths, and I said, this is perfect. There's no seven-eighths yeah. in the country. We're going to be our own track. So now we've got the road course inside. Now we've got a seven-eighths. Now we've got 12, 13, and 14-degree banking, and we got $75 million. And we built the racetrack, and we paid for it. And then Manette said, we want to get out of it. This is not our wheelhouse. And we sold the track basically to NASCAR. Yep. NASCAR owns a track right now, and they're operating yeah. And that's a story. Hey. But uh, when do you get ready to – when do you, does somebody nowadays have the opportunity as a driver to de- design a track, and the money's there to pay for it, right. it's done. Yeah. And now we've got all these NASCAR races and IndyCar races up there. It, it was a home run. It's beautiful.
0: And, and, and you mentioned the 7.8s. It's um – So, you know, I'm going to get in the weeds here. But as a crew chief, you know, you want to be able to kind of design a car and work on a car. But what makes the top lane work at Iowa, in my mind, is that extra – 100, 200 feet of straightaway. Off of right? turn you two. You get that run, and, and you know, at Richmond you can't get the top rolling as good because there's not enough straightaway to make it back, but in yep. Iowa you have those, you know, a couple hundred feet more and man, it, the I'm racing I'm glad you there, said that. The racing y- so it, good.
1: You know, I started to design it like Richmond, it, in, as a crew chief, you look at these traces, you probably know what I'm about to talk about. You actually turn twice going into turn one at yep. Richmond. You make an initial turn, then you got to make another turn. Yep. It wasn't a flowing entry. No. And I wanted to put a flowing entry, mm-hmm. and I didn't want the banking, or the straightaway off turn two to fall off too soon so yep. i carried the banking a lot longer right. off of turn two and that was the couple of the tricks there but you know as we're having this conversation i have to really really give a shout out to uh, conrad clement and stan clement they really put a ton into the racetrack and without that clement family that track will never be there i can tell you that right now wow. uh, stan lived that track every single day wow. i mean him and i i would show up every tuesday uh, for 16 months, stay there for two days working on that track. Stan would pick me up. Stan was there. And uh, it, 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 amazing guy. They still wanted to be involved in the racetrack, but NASCAR's got it now. So yeah. that's the deal.
0: Yeah, that's how it works. Well, then it's not just a racetrack um, successful behind the wheel. And then I don't know what gets into these drivers car owners. They all turned into car owners. You you know different than the rest. Uh let, so let me, your brother drove for you. Yep. Your son drove for you. Yep. I'm, try, I'm sure I'm missing. Those are probably the two that drove the most, right? Jamie
1: McMurray drove for me. Brendan right. Gahn drove for me. Yep. Uh, uh, David Stremme drove. We ran in the, in the back then called the Bush Series. Yep, yep. You know, the Nationwide Series, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, something about a driver just feels like he needs to be a car owner. I don't know what it is. Until you're a car owner. And all that newness kind of wears out, and I found myself kissing butt twenty four hours trying yeah. to find sponsors. You couldn't make a nickel; I couldn't, you know. Right? And finally, I said, "You know what? I've tried. I gave my best. I've I've done this for five years. Uh, I I know I've gave back to this sport. Right? But I'm about wore out right now, and so that uh, that that was just not my forte. I I don't I can tell you I don't think I knew how to run a team properly. And one of the big reasons uh, that was a bad deal for me trying to be a team owner, I was really Deeply entrenched with ESPN at that time. Oh, yeah. You know, they yep. hired me to be their guy, and I was in there, and I was at all these races. I was in all these ESPN meetings. I was traveling back and forth to Connecticut, and I couldn't spend the time with that team, and right. I couldn't spend the time with my son. I just couldn't do it, you know. Right. And ultimately, that's the the main reason I, they had to finally sell that team because yeah. it was just – I just couldn't put the effort I needed to.
0: Well, you mentioned ESPN, so uh, a long history as a broadcaster here today uh, for MRN. You you do a lot of work with MRN. I ha- I made the transition, so I have my own thoughts and opinions on how it went. Um, what was your take when you got to, that opportunity to go to ESPN? IndyCar did the five hundred. You got to do a lot of different things. How much did how much did you enjoy
1: broadcasting? I personally really enjoyed it. I had a great time doing it. Um, my very first opportunity was we didn't get NASCAR to 2007. Right. I retired in 05. So all of 06, they asked me to do IndyCar to start getting used to the yeah. broadcasting. So I did. And I was treated like a rock star at every race. The IndyCar guys were fantastic to me. I announced the Indianapolis 500 in 06. was able to call the Indy 500 in 07 because they liked those six. And then, and then I started NASCAR. And I did that. I was in the booth in 07. Then they called me up and said, hey, look, we want to start the NASCAR countdown show. And you're always real animated, and you're always explaining stuff. We think we'd love to have you do countdown with Brad Doherty. We're going to bring Brad Doherty, and we're going to have uh, uh, Chris Fowler, and we're going to have all these different people to be hosts. I said, okay. And they put Dale Jarrett in the booth, and they said, look, Dale can do this in the booth just as good as you can. I said, I totally agree with that. He said, but we like you in this position because you're so animated. I said, okay. And so I did that, and I did that to the day we, uh, we, we lost a contract to NBC, and that's how it was.
0: Yeah, no, it was great. Um, tell me about this. So I've asked this question to a few different Hall of Famers. What was it like when you got the call? So, you you know, you, your name goes on the list of, hey, potential. That's how, So how the process works uh, is the committee gets together, and there are, I think, 25 potential nominees they put on the list, and those are the 25 that get voted on. Uh, I don't think anyone had a question. I know I never questioned if, if Rusty would go into the Hall of Fame. But we always wonder when, right? How is this going to go in? We have, there's so many deserving people. What was it like when the phone rang and you knew you were going to be a NASCAR Hall of Famer?
1: I'll never forget it. I was uh, on Interstate uh, 85 going down to Spartanburg, South Carolina, to mess with airplane stuff. And I'm going down to get a phone call from Mike Helton. He said, hey, I just want to call you up and uh, tell you that you're being nominated in a top 25 to go into the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. I said, man, thanks. Fantastic. I really appreciate it. He said, i got to tell you one thing. He said, every time I see the track, I just see Rusty. Uh, I see the Rusty that we've been on boat trips. I see the Rusty that we hang out with on motorcycles. I see you. just I see you. But you know what? I never really sat down and looked at your numbers. Right. I had no idea how many poles you had, how many laps you won, how many races you won. I just see you as Rusty. And he said, he said your numbers are strong. I said, well, thank you. I appreciate that. He said, well, so you're being nominated. I said, great. And so then we went to the, the big deal. I think it was, I don't know if it was, I think it was Charlotte when they announced who the top five were yeah. going to be. <laughs> and when they said my name, it really blew me away. I was really happy. And the reason I was blown away is because I always looked at the Hall of Fame as somebody that's been around the sport for a long time. It's really given back for the sport, mm-hmm. really done a lot for the sport. Not so much how, how, what your numbers are. Right. And the guy that I personally was laser focused on was Benny Parsons. I was like, Benny Parsons got to go in the Hall of Fame before me. I mean, he bought, he's a broadcaster. He's won a championship. He's done this. He's done that. And he didn't make it in before me, and it just blew me away. And so when I was in, my name was announced, I was, by God, I'm not going to give it back. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. I'm not going to give it back. Yeah. But I was really thinking it was going to be somebody besides me because they had more seniority over me, and they've been around a lot longer than I have. And they've done a ton for the sport also. Mm-hmm. So even though I was so excited and, and, and happy – at the same time, I was like, wow, I, I almost feel like I don't deserve this this early. But when they give it to you and you make it in first round, you're like, wow, that's pretty good. But you know what they did? They went by my numbers. And they went by, you know, they tell me, you know, I, I never turn down anything I can try to help a speedway do and – I don't know. I try to always get back to this sport, too, and I guess I noticed it.
0: Well, more than deserving. Uh, it, I think uh, everyone that goes in the Hall of Fame is deserving, and there's never a question whether they should be in there, and I'm I'm excited that you're in there. Uh, fast forward to today. So okay. you work for MRN. You're up there in the booth. You watch the races like I do. Have you ever seen anything like the racing we're seeing now in NASCAR? I mean, it, it, the short tracks kind of look, you know, I've, I've seen you guys beating, bang, tire smoke. But these bigger tracks here at Darlington, Charlotte, I mean, what these guys are doing on these restarts with this arrow package and this momentum-type racing, it's as aggressive as I've ever seen it.
1: No, it is. It's real, real aggressive. And uh, I guess the only thing, uh, there's nothing that really surprises me. I'm really happy with what I'm seeing on the racetrack right now. Uh, it, it's bizarre what we've had to do to these cars to get to get the competition where they are right now. I never thought I'd be saying we're going to take 300 horsepower out of right. an engine and we're going to put all this yeah, the down on a like car. spoiler looks like my computer.
0: I mean, the thing is gigantic. Yeah. It has to be clear it's so big.
1: Right. It's very, very big. It's so tall that the, the top half of it has to be clear yeah. so the driver can look through the mirror and see out the back of the car. Right, uh, That never was like that. But so does go to 550 horsepower motors when at one point we're right at 900. And then we went to a, a, a deal where we were taking all the downforce off to get the tires to wear so yep. we could have some haves and have-nots yep. and more passing. So we've seen all this stuff all around, and now they've kind of hit on something that seems to be pretty racy looking, you know, on the track. Uh, and so I, I sit back and I scratch my head, and I go, boy, you got to hand it to NASCAR because they're trying everything they can to make the racing really, really good and make the fans really, really happy. And then here in a couple of years, now they're going to take all these cars and put them in a trash can and build all brand new stuff. Yeah. All new engines, all new everything. You know, we're, I'm talking a lot of engine builders, Yates primarily. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they're going to there's going to be some huge changes in 2021, and uh, I, I really personally think we're going to see different manufacturers coming also.
0: Well, I think that would be great. I think the manufacturers of the lifeblood. You said the word that I think is magical, and that's fans. Bristol. It's not. A, listen, it's not a secret. The last few years, I would sit up in the booth and go, "Man, this just isn't Bristol." Yep. I mean, where is the crowd? Where's the electricity? I'm telling you, this year, when I went up in the booth and looked out, it wasn't full. There was over, there had to be over 100,000 people. It was 80% full. It was electric. It was loud. You could hear the crowd over the cars at times. That's what makes Bristol Bristol.
1: I think this last Bristol race was one of the most exciting I've seen in a long time. I watched some of those races. that weren't aggressive. And we're all used to going to Bristol seeing aggressive right, races. Right. So Bristol used to be like 12 feet narrower in the corners, mm-hmm. when they put the soft wall or the the, the barrier in, and they moved it out, they put yep. compound banking in the track, they made it where the track was easier to race on, and it got to where there was no no bumping and banging and no crash, and then it got ho-hum and boring. And obviously the fans didn't like that. They didn't come back. Right. But this time, you know, by using the, the sealer they're using on the racetrack and the drivers kind of understanding the track better and uh, they getting their setups better and stuff, they put a much, much racier show on, I thought.
0: It was great. It was great. Listen, I've appreciated the time. I don't let anybody go though. You gotta, you gotta handicap it. Give me your, uh, give me the four we're gonna see in Miami and who's gonna be the champion.
1: All right, uh, me. It's always gonna be the two card and the four. Ke- Keselowski mm-hmm. is gonna be there. Uh, Harvick's definitely gonna be there. Yeah. I really think you're gonna see Kyle Busch again there. And who is that fourth? Now, see, that fourth is a tough one right there. It Get, gets
0: tough. Those other you?
1: three I can bank out, but I'm gonna go with Martin Truex. I think Truex okay. is gonna be my fourth one uh just because you look at the point standings right now all the gibbs guys one two three in the points. you look at the amount of wins four wins per each joe gibbs racing 12 wins right now 12 wins as we're doing this interview that's unreal you know so but i i I know the penske team like you know the hendrick team and those guys are not going to roll over they're on it you know so uh yeah, it, it's a. We'll see what happens, but the, the, that, that's <laughs> that's my prediction. Yeah, well, I have the
0: yeah, same. I'm I'm the same way. I'm I'm struggling for that fourth. I want to say Chase Elliott. I think it's somebody that's going to surprise us. Somebody's going to show up in the playoffs and do something special. Well, Rusty, listen. I know you're busy. I appreciate the time. I I know the listeners do. It's great. Uh, it's always great to catch up with you. We've had. I I was probably the second half. Right. I started the 24 in the late 90s. I didn't crew chief until '05 and the end of '05. So we didn't have many races together, but. Always a tough competitor off the racetrack. Always a great guy to see out and about. I appreciate your time,
1: buddy. No problem, buddy. I'll bang on the window here at Darlington as we're doing this interview during the race, you know, and I'll say hello to you. Okay? I, I love it. I, I love remember it. last year my car won. Keselowski won the race, right? Yeah, and so, Looking so, good. So when the race was over, the NBC guys were banging on the window going, hey, go down there and get in victory lane. I said, okay, man, so maybe it'll happen again tonight. It's a good-looking
0: <laughs> car. It's a good-looking car. There you have it. Hall of Famer Rusty Wallace, the 1989 Cup Series champion. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe, rate and review. This is another laart. I'm looking.